Well, I welcome you, my family online. I wish I could see your faces. I long for you. I ache for you. I have, I think for, I can speak for Jess and I as we've returned. We have a deep longing to be with our spiritual family. Um, it's amazing to be with a few in the room, but we long to see all of you, to hug you, and to see your faces, to hear your voices. I want to encourage you in this hour not to disconnect in this time that we're in as the church, not to be discouraged by what you see around you, but to be strengthened by the voice of God in this time. And though we are uh, doing things online for a very short time, uh, when you think about it in, in terms of history and eternity, this is a really short time that we're having to do this. And it's, it's really nothing but an inconvenience. And I pray that the church in Johannesburg and the church of 24-7, that we are more than a service that we are more than a once-a-week gathering, but we are a spiritual family. And our hearts are tied and connected and unified in one pursuit. And I'm grateful to know that there are people on the other side of a camera that I can't see, but that, that your hearts are connected to mine, your hearts are connected to ours, and that we can love Jesus together. And though I cannot see you, I feel you in the Spirit as we love our beloved Jesus. And so I say thank you for taking the time. I pray that you do it with honor, and I, I really do trust that you aren't... Uh, casual about this time. Um, thank you, Holy Spirit. Are we with this camera now? Okay, awesome. So we have just come back from 17 days in the Middle East, in Turkey. Um, we're going to take time on, on Wednesday night to share and, and give a full um, testimony and, and debrief uh, for the community of everything that went on. I want to just say to you, it was one of the most profound things I've ever done, one of the most terrifying uh, trips in some ways, uh, but we saw things that I've never seen ever before. We heard stories um, of our beautiful brothers and sisters, Syrian refugees and Turkish lovers of Jesus. We heard their stories, we heard their songs, we are learning their language, and uh, they are already one with us, and you can feel that in the Spirit when you're there, and I know uh, that they would want me to send their love as well to the church here. And so I do that. Um, but I want to ask you to please um, join us on Wednesday night. If I was to share everything now and try and share a word, we wouldn't get it all in. Um, and so we want to do it right. And so we'll share all the details. Uh, Jess and I will share the, the stories and, and everything um, when we, on, sorry, on Wednesday, Wednesday night, 7 p.m. So today I have a message for you in my heart that we want to uh, get into for the next two weeks. And so we'll do part one today, part two next Sunday. Um, and uh, we want to unpack this thoroughly because we believe that this is a message for this time that's positioning us as the church, not just for the next season, but positioning us for His return. And um, I believe that the Lord is, is opening up His Word to us um, in ways that we've uh, never experienced before. I don't want to say that what we've experienced before is wrong. Thank you. Uh, what we've experienced before is wrong. It's not at all. It's that the Lord is constantly doing a new thing in our hearts. And when He does a new thing, He never makes the old thing irrelevant. He's, he's constantly taking us from glory to glory, deeper and deeper into His realms. And I believe that there is a, uh, an aspect of the Word that's going to come alive to the church at this time where He will teach us how to read and receive uh, the Word. When I was, uh, the day before we left for Turkey, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, Con, I'm going to teach you three things on this trip. And I said, Lord, what are the three things? And he said, I'm going to teach you how to abide. I'm going to teach you how to read the word. And I'm going to teach you the power of the gospel. And I heard those three things. And I said, Lord, that, what does that have to do with Turkey? Everything. And uh, the Lord is, is taking me on a journey of those three things, of how to abide in the presence of the Lord how to read the Word so that it changes and transforms my life, and how to understand that it has never been about me getting my life to a spiritual place where, where suddenly you are able to do the, the things of the gospel. It's always been the power of the gospel in you to be expressed. And so I'm beginning to understand that it's not about striving and working hard to feel like you've got to a place where you think God could use you to demonstrate His power, but it's actually about allowing the power of the gospel to touch you, change you, transform you, and flow through your life. And there's a confidence that comes when you know that it has nothing to do with me. I'm just a carrier of this power. So the Lord's going to unpack that and, and teach us these things as we go forward. But I, I'm carrying a message today, a message of Antioch, Antakya. 
Uh, we spent five days in Antioch. If you don't know what Antioch is, if you read Acts 11 and 13, where we're going to go today, it's a place where Christians were first called Christians, where followers of Jesus were first given that title and that label. But it's also the birthplace of the Gentile missions hub or the movement of, of missions uh, to the Gentiles. And so we're going we're gonna to share a little bit about that and go there. Um, maybe what I'll start off with is I'll just uh, speak some Turkish to you to be fun. My pronunciation is probably terrible. So if any of our um, Syrian or Turkish friends are watching, I apologize in advance. Um, but we learned a few things, and we're going we're gonna to be learning the language. Uh, there's a few languages that we need to learn. want to encourage you. Uh, it's really good to be equipped and practical when you go to these places, because I think we met maybe three people that spoke English. Um, and so when you want to share the gospel with people that uh, don't know your language and you don't know theirs, it's a difficult thing. So everybody say, Merhaba. That's how you would greet somebody respectfully in Turkey, Merhaba. And if you wanted to say, nice to meet you, you say, Tanishtimiza, çok memnun oldum. Good luck. It took me 17 days to learn that, so go for it. And Nasilson, how are you? Iyum, I'm good. Iyuz, we are good here. Isa Sinisaviorum, I love you, Jesus. Isa Sinisaviorus, we love you, Jesus. Laik, worthy. Kutsal, holy. Teshikur Edrum, thank you. Thank you, Holy Spirit. All right, if you want to quickly turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, uh, verse 15. I believe we've been in this moment as the church for a little while. And uh, I think it's an interesting, slightly painful, and maybe even confusing thing when uh, the temple is being cleansed. Because sometimes we're a little confused as to why things are changing and why things as we know it, how we've experienced being the temple, suddenly is different. And there's this almost uh, aggressive, this holy aggression to this move of God in the church. And he's beginning to cleanse and, and move things out of the way and remove things that, that were never meant to be in his house. And suddenly he's purifying and he's cleansing the church. And it can be a little bit uncomfortable, especially when you choose to follow and yield. When you, when you allow Him to begin to move, we must be uh, ready to receive conviction, ready to receive transformation, ready to yield to the things that God's doing, even when they don't make sense. And so here Jesus comes to Jerusalem, says, And they came to Jerusalem, and He entered the temple, and He began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. The ways of the world. And He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He doesn't want our furniture. He doesn't want the furniture of the world, the culture of the world, the ways of the world, the systems of the world, the mindset of the world, the appetites of the world. He doesn't want anything of the world in his temple. And he makes one simple statement that defines exactly who we are called to be as his house and as his church. And he says, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer? For all nations. He didn't say, My house will be a house of prayer for you and your troubles and your difficulties and the struggles that you're having. He said, My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. That's not because he doesn't care about your struggles, it's not because he isn't working in your life. It's because we were called to be a people with a vision so much bigger than our own little lives to carry the mandate of the mission of Jesus Christ on the earth, which has never been about one or two. It has always been about a bride for His glory. And this bride looks so diverse and so unique and so beautiful and so different than maybe what we know in this time. Every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people, every skin color. This is a beautiful bride. And I want to say to you, when we went to Turkey to be accepted in a moment like you've known somebody for years is a profound feeling. To be accepted as family by somebody who knows nothing about you but feels the very same Holy Spirit and the oneness that we share in Jesus. I'll just say this. We, we had a connection 
with a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful sister who is now close, close family to us. And uh, an invitation to connect with her. And she, we weren't sure if we should go stay in our hotel, but she was saying, come stay with me. And it was like, well, how do we, what do we do? And, and she blessed us so much because she said, your family, why would you stay anybody, anywhere else? And I asked the question after we had stayed the first night. I said, is it okay for us to stay the second night or should we go back to the hotel? And she was incredibly offended with me for even asking. She said, why would you ask such a question? And my heart's been so moved because I saw family in the Syrian refugee church, the church in Turkey and in Istanbul and in Antakya. I saw family in a way that is so deep and so beautiful because there's There isn't any other options. All you have is Jesus and each other. And what I learned about family was this, that family doesn't mean that you just get together. We aren't family because we get together. We're family because we prefer one another above ourselves. We're family because in a moment I will give you everything. We're family because I can meet you in a moment, but know that because we're one in spirit, everything that I have is yours. It's profound. And so Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is a beautiful house. If you want to jump with me to Acts chapter 11. I want to just set this up. Um, what, what we've seen here in Acts is so beautiful. We've seen the, the church in Jerusalem is born in the Holy Spirit, in power. And we see... In the upper room, Holy Spirit comes, fills them in a day, 3,000 are saved. And as you begin to read through the beginning chapters of Acts, you see the, the design and the heart of God for His people. And, and suddenly it's radical generosity and it's, it's worship and it's devotion to the Word and, and it's signs, wonders, and miracles. It's the most beautiful picture to see in this oneness and the churches of one mind and one heart and one soul. And we read these chapters and we're so blown away by the birth of the church. But I want to encourage you that this was still people. These were still humans. These were still people that were learning and and the power of God was moving and and they were figuring out what this meant as they were going. And so you see uh, in in Acts chapter 6 that up until this point, the first couple of years of the, the, the church, it's a Jewish movement. And, and you see, there's, it's, it's all Jews, and yes, there's some, um, you know, uh, Greek uh, non-Jews that have converted that are, you know, now Jews, and, but they speak Greek. And so you see there's a little bit of this in the church, but it's predominantly this Jewish movement. And there comes a point where without even realizing it, what we would call racism today has crept in, where suddenly the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, come to the apostles with a complaint that the Greek-speaking widows are being neglected because of what? Because they're speaking Greek. They're not uh, born Jewish. And uh, it's a very interesting thing to see that. And suddenly the apostles are faced with a similar situation to what we face today. And so you, we see in the beginning, there's, there's, we really need to read and study this and, and, and begin to realize the church was, was learning and growing and being adjusted all the time. They weren't birthed in, in perfection and suddenly they were just, these were people that received the power of the Holy Spirit. And as they were walking with God, they were being adjusted and beginning to discover the dream of God. And so it's amazing that in Acts chapter, to, uh, Acts chapter 10, we see Peter, the first encounter with Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. And Peter is shocked. And the the Jewish believers are shocked. They cannot believe. How can this be so? Holy Spirit has fallen on the Gentiles. And in Acts chapter 11, the beginning, Peter is explaining this. And you can, as you read it, you can almost feel there's this excitement, but this shock and this slight confusion as to what does this look like if it's not just for the Jewish people and those that convert as Jews, suddenly, okay, this isn't about following Judaism. This is a new way. Jesus is the new and living way. And they're discovering this over a period of like 10 years. And the grace of God is on this people, teaching them, shaping them, molding them. And then suddenly we, we realize that other than a few short little moments in Samaria and the church in about seven, seven to 10 years hasn't moved past Jerusalem. And when Jesus commissioned them and when he was about to leave, he said to them that power is going to come on you to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
That was the mandate. And in seven to ten years, they hadn't left Jerusalem. And so what happens? Suddenly, a man named Saul begins to ravage the church. And I don't believe God commissioned Saul to do that, but hear me. God allows his church to endure persecution. And this man gives permission to kill Stephen. And Stephen is stoned. He's the first martyr and he's killed. And you get this scattering of the believers. So now, Acts chapter 11, verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. I want to just explain to you, that is far from Jerusalem. What it, what, it's some serious fear to drive you in that day and age, not by plane or car or bus or train. You are walking or you're sitting on a cart with a donkey that's probably exhausted, carrying you over mountains and this is, a, this is an incredibly far distance to travel. This is some serious fear. These people are scattered. The church has been shaken. They've been, they felt the shaking of the Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel, the boldness that came on them to preach the gospel. Now they're experiencing the first shaking of persecution that doesn't make sense, and it can be uncomfortable, but look at what it births. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Hello. They're still speaking the word to no one except Jews. So this movement has been scattered, but they're still just speaking to the Jews. They've, they're still not catching the dream of God. They still haven't been awakened to realize, yeah, didn't you see the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles? I want, you, I, mean, I want you to hear this because of the grace of God, that He's prepared to take you on a journey, that His dream will be established, and that He loves you enough to teach you along the way. Verse 20, but there were some of them. It only takes a few. There is no such thing as small churches or small communities. There's only significant ones. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Serene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. There's a note here that says, or the Greeks, Greek-speaking non-Jews. So now it's talking about people that are not even Jews, okay? Gentiles. They begin to share the gospel with the Gentiles and preaching the Lord Jesus. And then listen to this. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. God validating His dream. He's going, just a few people, it just took a few, some of them, who caught it, who were awakened by the Spirit of God. This is for everybody, and they preach the gospel, and God says, my hand will be upon you. And signs and wonders begin to explode, and suddenly a large number of people come into the faith like this. It sounds like Acts chapter 2. So there's something about a kingdom vision and a kingdom perspective. When we begin to see the dream of God that draws, it's like a magnetic force, it draws the hand of God, the favor of God, the power of God upon what we do when we realize that it's never been about a few people and keeping a few people okay. It's always been about being a house of prayer for all nations. It was never about creating a room where you can come to feel better about yourself and make sure that your pastors take care of you. It was never about that. It was about being a house of prayer for all nations with a vision, a perspective, and a picture of the heart of God, the dream of God on the earth, that this is for all people. Why would you go to the 1040 window at a time like this where 3.2 billion people don't know Jesus? Because it is the dream of God. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Can you imagine the shock? And this I love. We need to study the Bible because you, there's statements here that we read and we think we read it like a, like a fiction story. But these are real people with real lives. It says here, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, when I'm studying this, I'm going, hold on a second. Who's Barnabas? Why Barnabas? You get news that revival's breaking out somewhere. Gentiles are filled with the Spirit of God and are moving in signs, wonder, and power. And they get this news and they're sitting there and I'm imagining the elders and the apostles and the leaders and they hear, okay, who, who should we send? 
Barnabas. Why Barnabas? Well, you've got to go back to Acts chapter 4 to see that when the Spirit of God breaks out over the church and, and power and signs and wonders is happening, one of the things that marked them was their generosity. And it says this, it says that great grace came upon them all. And the next couple of verses were, and they sold everything that they had, all their possessions, sold their land, their fields, and they gave it, laid it at the apostles' feet. And it says that there was a man named Joseph called Barnabas, son of encouragement. And in fact, it says the apostles called him son of encouragement. So he must have been an incredible, encouraging guy, full of faith. And it says he's full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. And this man sold his field and he laid the prophet of this field at the apostles' feet. He laid the money at the apostles' feet. For what? For the purpose of the mission of Jesus on the earth. He laid it at their feet without, without uh, wanting to have control or a say or influence over what. I just want to make sure I know what you do with this money. Do you understand what it took me to have that? No. The heart wasn't at all about control. It wasn't at all about influence or gaining influence or, or, or title or anything in the church. It was about a man who was beginning to see the dream of God and who understood the worthiness of Jesus and was prepared to give everything. I want to say this. Randy uh, Martinez, somebody who leads an amazing ministry that also works into the Middle East, he said, Barnabas sold a field and it qualified him for his assignment. It unlocked nations. He sold a field, and because he sold a field, his heart had captured something of the dream of God that helped him to see what he needed to see to unlock Antioch. And I'm talking a period of maybe five, seven, five to seven, maybe even ten years. It's all estimated, but from when he sold his field to when Antioch actually happened. Something he did years and years before unlocked something inside of him that qualified him to see what the Lord was wanting to do in that region. And so Holy Spirit leads them to send Barnabas to Antioch. So they send Barnabas. When he came and saw what? What did he see? The grace of God upon them. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Listen to this for a second. It was because the grace of the Lord came upon the church in Jerusalem that they gave everything. He comes to Antioch and he recognizes that same grace. Why would he recognize that same grace? Well, he must have been seeing signs, wonders, but not only that, generosity that is mind-boggling to the world. See, why, why should the church be some of the most wealthy people in the world? Not because you're called to be rich, but because you're called to be generous. And there are going to be, I don't want to go down that trail, but I, we'll show you now in Antioch the diversity in the church where you will have the poorest of the poor seated next to the, the richest of the rich. But together they are brothers and sisters in Christ with one heart, one mandate, and all are taken care of in the kingdom. Okay. He came and saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man. What qualifies a good man? full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Here's where it gets amazing. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Let's back up a little bit. What happens to Saul? Saul goes to Damascus to go and persecute the church. He wants to kill them, arrest them, get rid of them. He is zealous to get rid of this movement. And on his way there, he gets knocked to the ground and has an encounter with Jesus that changes him forever. He spends time in Damascus. We know the story. Gets saved. He's blind for three days. Gets healed. Um, begins preaching Jesus. The church are terrified, astounded. They don't know how to handle this. It's, it's crazy. And uh, he begins to share. It's about three years or so that he's there. And, and he also goes into Arabia, into the desert, where he receives a revelation of the gospel of grace. And not only that... He receives an assignment and a mandate from the Lord that you will be an apostle to the Gentiles. You will be my sent messenger to the Gentiles. And he comes back to Damascus. Suddenly they want to kill him. Long story short, he heads to Jerusalem to go and share this revelation that he's received, to go and explain to Peter and to the apostles, this is what the Lord has said to me. Am I right? Am I, is this in line with the Jesus that you followed? That's humility, to have the encounters that you had like that, given 
the revelation directly from heaven, a mandate and an assignment from God, and have the humility to submit it to men and women. And he doesn't get the answer or the response that he thought he'd get. He comes and he shares with them, and guess what their response is? That's lovely. Off you go to Tarsus. Go home. We don't know why. We don't know what happened. I don't want to uh, extrapolate. But they sent him to Tarsus. They sent him home. Go back to where you were born. Go back to mom and dad. Go back to where you were raised. And they say, we don't know exactly, but it's estimated around five years or so that he was in Tarsus. Can you imagine? Here's a man who's been told by God, I've given you a message. It's the message of my gospel. And I've given you an assignment and a mandate. You're going to be a Gentile to the, uh, you're going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he goes to Jerusalem thinking, here we go. I'm going to get the right hand of fellowship and we're going to begin to work into different places and regions. And he gets told to go back to Tarsus. And I can imagine him being in Tarsus thinking, what on earth is going on? Lord, you, I, I don't think Paul would ever have been in a place where he was doubting God. But I think he would have been a little confused as to, I thought you said you wanted me to do this. Why am I in Tarsus? This doesn't make sense. And maybe he would have been even a little grieved. But here's a Barnabas who is given a mandate by the leaders of the church to go to Antioch and to lead this new revival, this new birthing of the bride in this region with Gentiles, something they've never seen before. And Barnabas goes there, recognizes the power and presence of God, and something comes into his heart, to, into his mind, and he begins to remember this young man named Saul who came to Jerusalem and shared the mandate that God had put on his life, apostle to the Gentiles. Here's a Barnabas, a spiritual father, who then leaves Antioch and does the long trek over mountains, and we saw the terrain with our own eyes. It is a long trek all the way up to Tarsus, and then has to find him in Tarsus and spend months to do this, to fetch a man whose destiny is to be an apostle to the Gentiles, who has almost been forgotten by the church. Barnabas, a man who has the heart of God, the vision, the perspective of the kingdom. Holy Spirit speaks to him, fetch Saul. He goes and grabs a spiritual son, Saul, who becomes Paul, and he brings him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they begin to teach and train. This is what grabs me about Barnabas. It was never about, well, now's my time to be the leader. Now's my time to lead this new, amazing, powerful movement where Jerusalem, where maybe getting a little bit stagnant, suddenly God's moving in Antioch and they have recognized me to lead this. No, actually he goes there as a father, recognizes grace upon them. And his first thought, because he's thinking like a father, he's thinking like a true apostle is, let me find that spiritual son that I recognize the grace of God upon. Let me find that man whose destiny is here. See, there's something about Antioch, the culture of the Antioch church, that's about redeeming destinies that have been forgotten. I promise you what the Lord is awakening in us now is mothers and fathers and sons and daughters that will be a people that fight for the destinies of God that have been placed, the mandates and the assignments on one another. Because can you imagine, I just want to remind you that the people were scattered. Antioch was founded by scattered Christians that Paul scattered. The persecution was because of him. They're in Antioch because of him. And Barnabas fetches this man and brings him in. And can you imagine they walk into the gathering and Barnabas is like, you just stand behind me. Let me just make sure that I walk in and, right, everybody, I've got someone to introduce to you. And he's going to be one of our main leaders here. And he's going to teach you and train you in the gospel because God's called him as an apostle to the Gentiles. Ta-da, Paul. By the way, the guy that, that, that terrified you enough to run so far from Jerusalem that you ended up in Antioch, he's now going to lead you. And you've got a community of people that had caught the heart of God, the dream of God, that they welcomed him, not just to participate, but to be led by him. This is the Antioch culture. So for a whole year, Paul and Barnabas begin to train and teach and equip, and, and, and a leadership team is formed. But it's interesting. Listen to this. It says, For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Why is this significant? The word Christian was never meant, meant to be the name of the movement. 
It was a description of something that they recognized in a collective group of people. For, for them to use the word Christian, little Christ or Christ-like ones, for them to use that meant a few things. Number one, they were all in unity, imitating Jesus, looking like Him. Because they wouldn't have called them Christians if it was only a few or if it was one or two in there and then the rest of them get... They, they labeled a movement of people by something that they saw in them. They saw the Messiah in the church, in the community, so much so that the best description I could give for this group of people is Christians. And it's funny that the church never called themselves that. They were just following the Christ. They were followers of Jesus. They were living. Christians was never, the word Christian was never meant to label a religion. It was a description of what a group of people looked like. And it's in Antioch that this first happens. Now, I've just described to you this environment, this, this beautiful place of redeeming destinies and, and a, a beautiful people that are accepting and, and there's forgiveness and there's transformation and there's power and signs and wonders and this church is growing. Within two years, it's an established church. And suddenly it says, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Why do prophets want to go to Antioch? What was it about the community in Antioch that created the environment and the, the uh, atmosphere for the prophetic? Because Agabus, one of these prophets, he comes from wherever he was, he comes all the way from Jerusalem. Yeah, from Jerusalem. He comes all the way to Antioch. He comes from Jerusalem, hear this, to Antioch to prophesy something that's going to affect the church in Jerusalem. He says, a famine's coming over the whole world. And this is what I love. It says, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. I believe that when you cultivate this kind of family, a place where prophecy, true, the true prophetic begins to operate, Prophets are not looking for a word to prove their gifting or to seem accurate or to impress. But there is a pastoral shepherding heart that comes with prophets that bring prophetic words that carry a seed in them, which is about how are we going to take care of the brothers? This is a word to reveal what's coming, what's happening. This is a word to reveal the heart of God, to the mandate, the assignments of God. But all of that is clothed and wrapped in how are we going to take care of the brothers? How are we going to take care of the family of God? And so here the prophetic is marked by family. And when the prophetic begins to operate outside of family, it becomes independent and it becomes susceptible to being wrong, not because the heart is wrong, but because the environment is wrong for the prophetic. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So beautiful. Then let's jump to chapter 13. There's so much that I could, we could even go in a little bit in chapter 12, but let's just jump to 13 for the sake of time. Oh, help me, Lord. Ten minutes. You're kidding me. Um, okay. <clears throat> uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. Wow. This is an environment that's, that's producing prophets, that's producing teachers, demonstrators of the word, demonstrators that, that are equipping people not in a message, equipping people in an, in an expression, demonstration, the revealing of who we are as sons and daughters. And it explains, there's Barnabas, spiritual father. Barnabas. Simeon, who was called Niger, which is a Latin word meaning black or dark. Very quickly, the leadership of Antioch is already beginning to show you a picture of the kingdom. It went from a Jewish movement to now this diverse, beautiful, different races, different cultures, different types of people, even in their leadership team. So here you've got Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Serene. These are people from different places. They're not all from Antioch. Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Here's a man who is a friend of a prince. He's so a friend of a, a wealthy, governmental, influential. This man knew, he understood government. He understood politics. He understood business. He understood wealth. He's a leader in the church. And he counts the title Christian as something to be owned more than a friend of this man. Or And Saul. 
While they were, here we go, this is where, we, this, are you ready for this? We're going to get, this gets wild. <clears throat> While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, okay, right here we begin to see what marks Antioch and why they're a prototype of the dream of God for the community that we're called to be and the bride of Christ in the nations. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the word for worshiping here is not the normal one that's used, which is proskuneo, right? It's not proskuneo, it's litogeo. I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but that's what it sounds like when you read it. Litogeo, guess what it means? It's the word to describe the priestly rhythm of worship. It was, it was the action described for priests who would go in and out of the holy place to make sacrifices to the Lord, to minister to the Lord. It was a rhythm of life. And I want to encourage you with this. The Jerusalem church, they still lived in a rhythm of prayer and worship. There were set times in the day that they would stop what they were doing, stop work, and head to the temple for prayer. Acts chapter 3, they were going for 3 p.m. prayer time at the temple. It, it is, it's when the presence of the Lord doesn't become something that you take for granted in such a way that it's like, no matter what I'm doing, I've got the presence anyway. No, you're not even concerned or aware of His presence. But something in this, like Geo, it's, it's a priestly heart. It's a priestly understanding. It's a rhythm of life. It's a, I am so aware of His presence. I so honor His presence that there are set times in my day that I am devoted to focus on nothing else but Him. How am I meant to house His presence if I'm con continually throughout my day distracted by so many things, why, why was it important to have set times? Why was it important to have a rhythm of life, of gathering? And, and that's why it was never about Sundays. It was always about this rhythm of life as a community of being priests and kings unto the Lord. So while they were lightogeoing, worshiping the Lord and fasting, why do we fast as the church? This is a question under the grace movement. Why do we fast? Because we are priests unto the Lord and we set ourselves apart in a rhythm, a priestly rhythm of worshiping and loving God. Why do we fast? Because we long for the bridegroom and we love Him. We want to be a people that, that host His presence. We want to be a people where His presence can dwell. We want to be a house of prayer for all nations. How am I going to hear the heart of God for the nations if I'm not yielded and surrendered and ministering to His heart and seeing His face? This is what marked Antioch. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, it's in, a, it's in the context of hosting His presence that the Holy Spirit can truly lead the church. It's in, a, it's in a community of believers and people that have made a decision to light a geo, to make a rhythm out of life in hosting His presence, that my life will be shaped and defined and organized around hosting His presence. And it's in that kind of culture that the Holy Spirit can speak and lead His church as the, as the expression of the great shepherd. And so the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. There's a divine assignment. There are divine assignments in the church, but we cannot run after assignments until we have learned to be priests unto the Lord. Then He sets them apart, and it says, Then after fasting and praying, here's the divine assignment from the Lord. The Holy Spirit has spoken. This is what you're called to do. Oh, let's pack our bags and go. No, let's go back to Lytageo. Let's go back to the priestly rhythm. Don't just rush off. Make sure you solidify. Be sustained. Let that word, that assignment be sustained and solidified in your heart by what? The presence of God. That we, you go back to fasting and praying that this thing is being formed in you. And once you're in that place, you understand that in order to do this, in order to follow this assignment, I'm going to have to know that my way of life is not marked by the assignment. It's marked by the presence. It's, it's because of this kind of understanding as the church that you see verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. See, we do not want to be a group of people that are just about sending. We want to be a people of His presence that can receive the word of the Lord and be sent by the Holy Spirit. It is a very different thing. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6. I'll try and wrap it up here. How am I doing? Whoa. <laughs> I hope everybody online is, is good. Thank you, Holy Spirit. My Bible's all squished together from the plane. 
Okay. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 6. This is incredible. Here's a mandate. Here's a commissioning. Here's the Lord crying out, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Let's start at the top. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. In the year that COVID-19 broke out, we saw the Lord. Sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. What is God's response to crisis? Presence. (laughs) What is God's response to chaos and confusion and fear? Presence. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What do I mean by presence? Being filled with his presence. God says, what am I going to do about COVID-19? I'm going to fill my church with my presence. I'm going to fill my body with a greater measure of who I am than they've ever known before. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two covered his face. With two covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy. Katsul, katsul. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I don't know about you, but all I'm seeing here is an invasion of the glory of God in Isaiah's life. God's glory is invading. And what does it produce? This is what it produces. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Listen to this. He recognizes in and of myself and in and of humanity, there is nothing that we have to give you. You are holy. That's what it comes to. Do you see why it's the power of the gospel and never about you getting things figured out? Because it's just him. You, when, you, when his glory and his presence is, is in us and, and among us as the people of God, it's never about me getting something organized or, or fixed or, or sorted out to do what he's called me to do. It's always woe is me and woe are we without you. You are holy. And then it says this. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What's the fuel for missions? For my eyes have seen the King. Why do we do what we do? For my eyes have seen the King. Why do we lay hands on the sick? For my eyes have seen the King. Why would you worship day and night? For my eyes have seen the King. If you've seen Him, it's not a question anymore. If you've seen him, there's no confusion as to what we're called to do. If you've seen him, you know the mandate. Then one of the seraphim, listen to this, God's response to Isaiah. Isaiah says, woe is me, recognizes my need for God. I have seen the king of glory, his perfection and his beauty. And God's response is he sends a seraphim to grab burning, a burning coal from the altar and touch his lips. It's a representation of Jesus. Isaiah gets touched by the burning coal, and it says, verse 7, And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Hear me on this. What's the Lord saying? He's saying, Yes, yes, I'm glad you've recognized that there is nothing that you can bring. I'm glad that you've recognized that I'm not asking you to be anything other than who I am in you. I'm not asking you to bring your skills. I'm not asking you to bring your talents. I'm not asking you to bring what you think is worth, uh, worth it or, or valuable. I'm asking you to see me because if you see me, my, the train of my robe will fill the temple. My presence will fill you, will fill the temple of God. This is a prophetic picture that God's speaking here. My presence will fill you. And then guess what? I will touch you with the life of my son the burning coal from the altar. I will touch you with Jesus. And when that happens, everything that you are outside of me will be removed. Your guilt, your shame, your condemnation, the things that could stop you from doing what I've called you to do will be removed. And I will be your strength, your power, your divine enablement, everything that you need. It will be God in you bringing the gospel about. It's profound. Because what it means is God's not asking for you to get yourself together or, or get your spiritual formation intact. Spiritual formation happens when you see the king. And when that happens, God can now use you in ways that you would never be able to do in, in yourself. 
So for example, you go, well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually introvert. I'm terrified. I don't know how to speak to people. And God says, you're the one I'm going to send to the Middle East or to this place or to that place. Or I'm going to put you in stadiums in front of thousands or whatever it is that God's called you to do. Is it because of my glory, because of my presence in you. If you will be a carrier of my presence, I will do things in you that you never thought possible. This is key to the Antioch culture. Then it says, uh, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Pause. He doesn't say, whom shall I send? He says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Very different. It's not just about being sent. It's about being sent for Him. Because the difference is if you're sent for Him, if you're sent for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have no other agenda other than what He puts inside of you. See, it's, it's, it's when you're free from other agendas that you know you're going for Him, that you can go into nations with a humility and a yieldedness, a tenderness. You can be shaped and moved because there's going to be things that happen in your life and everything that God's called you to do that you didn't expect or you didn't see coming. But it doesn't shake you when you understand that everything that you're doing is coming from the fact that it's for Him. And then Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And the Lord said, go and say to this people, Isaiah says, here I am, send me, because he's got a revelation now that he's been touched. I've seen the king and I've been touched by a burning coal from his fire. So what am I, wow, that, that went very different to our thought, but what am I trying to, to set up here? I'm trying to set up a, an understanding of what is happening to the bride of Christ in this hour. And, and we'll share a lot more about this on Wednesday when we tell the stories of, of Turkey. But what we're realizing is that we are very clear about what God has given to us as a mandate to become as the church. It's a house of prayer for all nations. It's not a house of prayer meetings. It's a house of intimacy. It's a house of intimacy for all people, for all tribes, for all tongues, for every location and place on this planet. We are a house of prayer for all nations. And before we are a house of missions, we're a house of presence. We cannot be a people of missions. We cannot be a people of evangelism. We cannot be a people that reach nations until we've learned to be a priestly people that have learned and cultivated a rhythm of His presence in our lives. That's why we're opening prayer rooms. Not so that you can come and have a prayer meeting, but so that you have a place to come and encounter the Lord, that you have a place to set time apart, that you will stop what you are doing and come to be in the presence of the Lord with your brothers and sisters. When we begin to do this, we create an environment, a breeding ground, a culture, the Antioch culture is what I'm calling it, um, where suddenly we can become a launch pad for the divine assignments of God into the nations. A launch pad. Why? It was, if you don't have Antioch, you don't get Paul. If you don't have Antioch, you don't get missions to the Gentiles. We are not saved. If you don't get Antioch, you don't get the church in Ephesus. What I love about Antioch is after this, there's a couple times it's mentioned where they kept returning to Antioch, but it seems like this community fade into the background. And suddenly we see what they birthed. Churches like Ephesus, which became far more prominent, bigger, well-known, uh, another place that where the, the apostles and, I mean, you see Peter came to Antioch, John came to Antioch, Paul was there, Barnabas was there. Uh, people were coming through there all the time. And suddenly you see, okay, well, John, and then they settled, Timothy, they settled in Ephesus and it's not Antioch. And this isn't a community that go, oh, well, you know, hey, what about us? Or we're trying to be the most successful, well-known, big church. No, it's not about that. They take pride. They, are, they rejoice in the fact that we've been a people of His presence that have become a launch pad for the destinies of God into nations, into regions, that churches that would be far bigger, far more successful, far, whatever it is, that, that's a joy because that's on my tab. <laughs> Everything that Paul did is on, is on Antioch's tab, <laughs> if you call it that. If you, if you sowed into Jess and I going to Turkey, everything we did is on your tab. You are part of the reward. We received the same reward, 24-7 church. We were commissioned and sent by 24-7 church into Turkey. The reward is yours. And if you don't understand that, you'll miss the inheritance that's yours. It's right in front of you. Take a hold of it. And I want to say this. I am blown away by how we were sent. Because up until the day before we were going to leave, we didn't have enough. 
And within three days, even on the third day of being there, we had doubled what we needed. So we were able to bless house churches and ministries and leaders with thousands of rand. That's you. I want you to like feel that. That 24-7 church impacted and touched people's lives. Our brothers and sisters, the family of God. And it's not for a moment, and that's why we'll share on Wednesday what it looks like going forward. But we have become partners in the gospel with our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. We have become one with them. And when they grieve and when they hurt, we grieve. And when they rejoice, we rejoice. And the same the other way around. And I have to say, there's work to be done, beloved. I'm so glad I have another week because I feel like I haven't even got started. But what I'm sharing today is I want to encourage us. Oh, Jess, can you get me that key? I want to encourage us. I, uh, when we went to Turkey, I said, Lord, I am so excited that you're unlocking the nations. So I said, how are you going to do it? And he said to me, I'm going to unlock you. And I said, Lord, I'm one person. How are you supposed to unlock nations by unlocking one person? He said, it's not about one person. It's about unlocking sons and daughters. And if, if, the, if we allow the Father to unlock sons and daughters, that's what unlocking nations is. See, nations are not locations. It's people. It's never been about going to a country. It's been about going to people groups. Well, why does the Lord care about Turkey? I'm not so sure He cares about Turkey. I think He cares about Turkish people. Why does the Lord care about the Middle East? Because there's a whole bunch of different tribes, tongues, people who don't know Him. There's sons and daughters that need to be unlocked, and the Father wants to unlock us so that He can unlock others. When we were in Antioch, we were walking down this one street. We found this little antique kind of store with like, I don't know what you'd call it, like little antique things. My mom would love it. And uh, we were walking around, and Jess was buying soaps. Because um, there's like really cool soap there. Apparently, it's like really unique, hey? Yeah. Anyway, good for wrinkles. Um, and uh, I'm walking, looking around, and there's this shelf. It's like right in the corner. Nobody really walks to that part of the shop. It's like very strange. Um, and like behind some things at the back of this shelf is, shelf is this key. And I don't know if you can see it online, but it's this key here. And I was taken by this key, and I grabbed it, and we had just, it was a profound day. And in fact, this key was bought on the 21st day of the year 2021 in the 21st century. 21st day of January, yeah, I don't know how to say that, it's crazy. Um, and uh, I see this key, and I ask the lady what this key is, and she can't speak English, so she takes out Google Translate. And uh, she types it out, and it pops up on the phone, and my heart leapt, because it says there, the old church key of Antioch. And I knew straight away, I need to buy this. I have to have this. And so we bought this. I didn't even know if it was for sale or if it was just a decoration. But I was like, we need to buy this. And so we bought this. And I've, I've been holding this key and just looking at this key and saying, Lord, you are unlocking the same culture, the same DNA that we read about in the church of Antioch. Uh, a people of his presence, a people that light to Gao, the rhythm of, of his presence in our lives, priests unto the Lord. And because of that, we're going to see nations, we're going to see billions of people come to know the Lord. And I, I'll say two, two more things and then I'm done. Um, you know, in, in the Middle East, five times a day, the mosques release the call to pray. And they are I love Muslim people. They're the most misunderstood people. I have, a, I have a deep love for Muslim people. I can't tell you. They are the most misunderstood people on the planet. And I want to say to you, they are directly our brothers and sisters. And if your brother and your sister went wayward, would you not go after them? We are not called to be filled with hate or fear of extremism and and I know that Islam, it's not, there's, there's groups within Islam that are extremists. I, I know all about that. Don't freak out. But we're not called to be in fear. We're not called to stay away. We're called to go after our family. I have a deep love for them. But they, um, they release the call to prayer five times a day. And I promise you now, they have caught something that the church has forgotten. They are enthroning a principality over a region that is causing an atmosphere and a realm to govern a certain place which makes it very difficult. It's very oppressive. We'll tell you the stories on Wednesday. I'm, t- I'm talking oppressive. 
It's a difficult place. And when I was there, I was saying, Lord, 30 million people in Istanbul, one city. It would take me five lifetimes to even try and reach one city. How the heck are we supposed to do this? And the Lord said, listen. And I began to listen to the calls of prayer happening from the mosques. And the Lord said to me, they are five times a day, they're enthroned in principality. How many believers are enthroning me in this region? See, it's when you enthrone Jesus that you begin to release the atmosphere of heaven. When the atmosphere of heaven is released, you cultivate environment for the supernatural. You cultivate place for the supernatural. That's when visions and dreams and encounters begin to happen. And we'll share it on Wednesday. We had a lady who had dreamt about us three or four days before we arrived. She had seen our faces. What we need in the Middle East, even before evangelism, is worship. We need lighter geo. We need priests. Next thing I want to say, this is really in pieces, but I hope you're catching this somehow. And next week, I'll work harder to wrap it up and bring it together. But I was thinking about something with this message about being priests and kings. See, to be a king means to, to demonstrate the, the governance, the rulership of God. It means to walk in the abundance. It means to walk in power and signs and wonders and to see the miraculous and to see favor and prosperity, you know, as the Lord wills. But um, I, I felt this. I felt, you know, there's a lot of businessmen in the Western church who have a desire to be kings in the kingdom of God, to live as kings. And it's a good thing. But if you don't learn to be a priest before you act as a king, you will never find a place in the family of God. So now you've got business men and women who are called to be kings, who are called for wealth and called for governance and, and amazing spheres of influence that are specifically for them. They're called to be kings. We're all called to be kings, but I, this is a word specifically for businessmen and women. And I feel the Lord say to you, learn to be a priest first. Learn to be a, a person or a people of my presence. And if you have the heart of a priest, you'll be a good steward as a king. If you learn to worship, I can trust you with my power. You'll find a place in the family of God when you learn to be a son and a daughter, priest unto the Lord. And then God will use you to touch nations. So 24-7, the Lord is unlocking you, and He is unlocking an Antioch culture. He is redefining and reshaping us and bringing us back to the simplicity of His presence. And it's because of that that we will see many come to know Jesus, and we will see nations transformed, entire people groups. So I'm excited to be a part of this family. I'm excited to be a part of this church, and I hope and I pray that you are too. If you've been in fear with this COVID thing, um, you know, everybody told us we were absolutely crazy. I've never been in so much torment the week before we left where we, hadn't, we were not sure if we were going, not going, not going. We couldn't take our whole team and it was, it was difficult. And uh, I actually felt tormented by the voices speaking at me. You're crazy. This is wild. What are you doing? Why would you take your wife there? Why can't you just wait? Just wait a few months. Just wait. And then there's the fear of, dude, COVID, bro. Like, are you going to, I mean, people, <laughs> you're going to where it's terrible. It's, it's, it's the worst there. It's actually way better than here. And so it was intense and there was a war. And the Lord gave us the strength and the grace to say yes to him in a moment that seemed impossible. And it was not easy. I want to say that to you. It was not easy. But the Lord was so faithful to keep us. It's a miracle that we got home. It's a miracle that we left the South African airport, which we'll tell you about on Wednesday. But it was a miracle to get home. And it's a miracle to see all that the Lord did um, in our time there in Turkey. But I, I learned something about saying yes to the Lord. And I learned something about hearing His voice and following Him. And if we're not a people of His presence, His voice will not be familiar. And it will sound like something crazy and foreign in moments that are difficult. But if we're a people of His presence, we'll learn how to say yes to Him when everybody else is telling you no. It reminded me of when Paul was going to go back to Jerusalem and uh, the Agabus comes and ties up his hands and his feet and says, with a belt and says, the owner of this belt, which was Paul, this is what they're going to do to you when you get to Jerusalem. And they, they all are saying to Paul, don't go, don't go. It's crazy, don't go. By the Spirit, they're saying this. 
And Paul says to them, why, why are you doing this to me? Why are you bringing me to tears? Do you not know that I'm ready to give my life for the gospel? What is he saying? He's saying, I've heard from the Lord and I'm prepared to give him my yes, no matter the cost. And I don't care if it sounds crazy to everybody else, but I've heard. And that's kind of what it felt like to, to do this trip. And I feel to encourage the church at this time to say yes. And I want to say it in the context of COVID. I learned this from our Syrian brothers and sisters in the Middle East. They said this to me. I said, are you not afraid of COVID? They said, we're not afraid of COVID. COVID does not exist in our house, not because it's not real. But they said this. They said, is not, is not the blood of Jesus as real as COVID? And which one's more powerful? So is COVID real? Yes, we just lost a dear loved one, family person, a person in our family that we love. We just lost someone to COVID. And I will, I will make hell pay for that as a family, not because I have any strength, but because I will give a yes to Jesus. I mean, we heard the news in Turkey and what it, what it stirred in me was like, it's go time, buddy. Doesn't, it doesn't bring me to a place of fear of COVID. It brought me to a place of aggression in the kingdom. Why? Because COVID is real and it's taking lives. But the blood of Jesus is real. Is it not real? Is it a theory? If it's a theory to you, it's something you acknowledge, but actually COVID governs you. But the reality is I'm tired of being governed by COVID and I'm tired of the church being governed by, governed by COVID because the blood of Jesus is real and it's more powerful than COVID. And today we make a stand as a church to no longer be dictated to as to how we can be family based on a virus. Because I want to say this to you. I realize the reason why COVID is so intimidating to us is because we do not know hardship. But when you are meeting Syrians who love Jesus, who, who can explain to you that there is no difference between bombs in your hometown, bombing and, and people attacking your family and shooting at you and torturing you and capturing you. There's no difference between that and a disease in another location. All is for His glory. How can we not be the church at this hour? How can we not be together? How can we not be governed by the blood of Jesus at a time that is no different than other, other hardships? But in the West, it's because we do not know hardship. We do not know persecution. We do not know difficulties. All we know is inconvenience. And so we allow inconvenience and fear of a disease that is very real. I understand that. We allow fear of this thing to dictate to us how we will live as sons and daughters of God. When, when I read this book, it's the blood of Jesus that defines us. There's only one difference between me and others that are hiding away and terrified, and it's faith. I'm not saying that because I'm edifying myself. I'm saying I, I wrestle with this all the time, wrestle with COVID, wrestle with it, but I'm fighting the, the war, the battle of faith to say I will not bow. Why do you go to Turkey? Why would you do this? Why would you go in the middle of COVID? Because I will not bow to anything other than the name of Jesus. And it's by the grace of God. And I pray today that great grace would come upon us because I promise you this, I was not bold and not brave when I'm standing in the South African airport and they're telling me we're not going to let you go. And when we arrive in Istanbul and they're intimidating us and the police are there and they're taking us all these different places and, and I've got my wife next to me and I'm going, how can I have brought my wife here? It was not me. It's not strength. It's grace. But when grace comes upon the church, so does strength and it's the strength of the Holy Spirit. So I want to honor you 24-7, and I'm sorry I've taken up a little bit more of your time, but I want to honor you, and I want to say thank you for being a church that loves the presence of Jesus. Thank you for being a church that loves the nations. Thank you for sending us. And I pray today that you encounter Jesus in a way that you never have before, and that we as the church arise and shine, and that we become a people of His presence at this hour, and that the power of the gospel would be known in our lives, and that the power of the gospel would be known in our city. And I say to you 24-7, I love you. I love you, and I would give my life for you in a second. And I'm not talking about a brand or a logo or a movement. I'm talking about you. And I ask, Lord, that you put this love in our hearts, a love for you that turns into a love for each other. And we honor you today, Holy Spirit, and we glorify you. And we say thank you for what you're doing at this hour. And we ask for your grace and your mercy upon us to lead us 
into what you are shaping us to be. And I pray for boldness. I pray for faith. I pray for strength, no matter the cost. And I love you, Lord Jesus. All is for your glory. All is for your name. You can kneel or, or do whatever, but if you are able to stand, stand with me even at home. If you're on the ground, that's cool. You stay, stay on the ground. You do what Holy Spirit is leading you to do. But if you can stand, stand with me. I speak the fire of God over the church. I speak boldness over the church. I speak to your spirit. I say, come alive in Jesus' name. I speak to your hearts. I say, be unlocked by the spirit today. Be covered. Next week, we're going to talk about what it means to be to abide in His presence and to be this community. And I want you to take Psalm 91 as the church and just read verse 1 all week. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He who dwells shall abide. We will be a people who dwell. So we dwell in Your presence and we receive You today. Jesus, we love You. We honor You. We honor You. We honor You in Jesus' name. I want to encourage you that the live stream is going to end now, but I'd like to ask you to take a moment by yourself alone with the Lord. We'll take a few moments here to let the Holy Spirit just touch you, just touch your heart. Just take this message. It's a message. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't stand up today to teach you a message. I ask that the Holy Spirit takes the words from my mouth and the words from this beautiful book, the words from His heart, and He, and he touches you in a tangible way ministers to your heart. And I pray that. I bless you 24-7. I bless you in the name of Jesus. And I, I'm excited to spend time together, even if it's on Zoom for now. I'm excited for our times together in the midweek. I love you. I bless you. I honor you. Those online, stay strong, stay encouraged. We'll see you in the midweek. Love you guys.